We're going to read Isaiah chapter 33. Now, in my sermon, I'm only going to look at one verse, uh, but I want to read the whole chapter just to get the context of that verse, uh, which I will refer to in the sermon. Uh, And the chapter itself is one of what's called the woe passages. Um, You'll notice the first word is woe in the NIV. Um, That's why it's called a woe passage. Um, There are six woe sermons. This is the last of the woe sermons. The first one, I think, I think is back is in chapter 28. Yes, woe to the wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. That's the first woe passage. There's six woe passages. They're not always at the beginning of the chapter. And this is the sixth woe passage. And they're all very similar. Uh, What I want to just explain is how to read Old Testament prophecy. A lot of people struggle uh, with Old Testament prophecy. And so I just wanted to give you a little bit of an... uh, a way to understand it in a sense. Though we're not going to look at this whole prophecy, it, it does help to open it up a little bit. There's three major themes that come through all Old Testament prophecy. And the first of those themes is that there is a declaration of sin and a call back to the nation to covenant faithfulness. So there's a call back to covenant faithfulness. You'll see that again and again through Old Testament prophecy. The second theme is a warning of judgment. If the nation doesn't respond to that uh, declaration of sin and that call to the nation back to covenant faithfulness, then there is warnings of dire judgment to come. And then the third theme is that all is not lost. There is an announcement of hope. The kingdom of God will still come. God's promised and future king will come. There is this announcement of hope, and that comes through again and again. Those three things are always there in Old Testament prophecy. If you spot those, it helps. It unlocks sometimes the difficulties we have in reading Old Testament prophecy. And you'll see that in in Isaiah 33. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter. Let's hear God's word. Isaiah 33, verse 1. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer. You who have been betrayed, who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, people pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted, no travellers are on the roads, the treaty is broken, its witnesses are despised, no one is respected. The land dries up and wastes away, Lebanon is ashamed and withers, Sharon is like the Araba, and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. Now will I arise, says the Lord, now will I be exalted, now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff, you give birth to straw, your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned to ashes, like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. 
You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil. They are the ones who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress, their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thought you will ponder the former error, terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more, people whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them, no mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose, the mast is not held secure, the sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. No, living, no one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word too. As I hope you saw this, those three themes come through that... Um, that uh, uh, call of the nation back to righteousness, that warning of judgment to come, but also that announcement, that wonderful announcement of hope. But we'll look at one of those verses from that chapter a little bit, in a little bit. Now, do you have a favourite verse? Put your minds into gear and think. Do you have a favourite verse? From the Bible, that is. Do you have a favourite verse? Of course, some. With an over-spiritualised uh, sensitivity, mentality. Some will say, well, surely all the verses of the Bible are equally important and therefore you shouldn't have a favourite verse. And indeed, in a measure, they are right for, as the Bible says, all scripture, all scripture, every verse of the Bible is God-breathed and useful for teaching rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. All scripture, every verse of the Bible but still, we are human, and every person is different, and not all verses, not every verse of the Bible is of equal weight, so to speak. Therefore, I think it's only natural, isn't it? It's, only, it's also correct, isn't it, for us to have favourite verses. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, at least that's my view. Disagree with me if you want. But with that in mind, do you have a favourite verse from the Bible? 
Do you? Perhaps it's a well-known verse, such as John 3, 16, which we all know. Or 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. If you don't know it, you should. Or perhaps it's a more obscure verse, uh, which in the past has been of specific, specific relevance and benefit to you in your life. Now recently, well over COVID and and then we've had the issues in Ukraine and other issues across this world, um, there's a verse that has impressed itself upon me. It's Psalm 90 verse 12. Moses says, teach me, teach us rather, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How important is that, to have that perspective on our lives within this temporary world in which we live. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. However, the verse which is my all-time favourite is a verse which we read from that chapter in Isaiah. Did you notice it? Isaiah 33, verse 17. Let me read it to you. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. And this, is, this verse is our text uh, for this morning. Now, something which has struck me more and more, uh, in fact, through my years of studying the Bible and preaching the Bible, uh, one thing that's particularly struck, struck me is that the Bible is truly one book. It really is. Indeed, it has a single storyline which moves from a definite beginning to a, to a decisive and conclusive end. It also has a purpose, an overarching theme, so to speak. Uh, and what is that overarching theme, that purpose? It's Jesus Christ and the salvation the redemption and reconciliation which God brings to us through him for his own glory. That is the theme of the Bible. Jesus Christ and the salvation, the redemption and reconciliation which God brings to us through him for his own glory. And even more, as the Bible story progresses from the beginning through to the end so that overarching theme of salvation of redemption in particular so that theme of redemption of rescue of deliverance of 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 being rescued by God out of the penalty and the guilt of our sin so that theme is described to us in different phases or different moments There are different moments of redemption as you work your way through uh, the story of the Bible. Let me run very quickly. This is not what my sermon is about this morning, but don't worry, we're not going to run on too long. But let me run very quickly through those phases or those moments of redemption. First, this is an overview of the Bible, so to speak. First we have in Genesis 1 to 3, we have redemption required. For those three chapters explain to us why we're all sinners held captive under the power and penalty of sin. Then, in the rest of the Old Testament, from Genesis 4 through to the end of Malachi, we have redemption patterned. Uh, so why is redemption patterned for us in the Old Testament? Why do we have the Old Testament? Have you ever asked that question? Well, so that we can understand much more fully 
what it means for God to redeem us, his people. That Jesus Christ is a king and a prophet and a priest and a sacrifice and a bridegroom and a shepherd and a servant. And I could go on and on, couldn't I? All those things are revealed to us in the Old Testament and brought to us so we can understand who the Messiah will be. It also shows us that we cannot, we cannot redeem ourselves. No matter how much we may think that we are God's moral equal, we cannot redeem ourselves. For we need, and we need also not just gracious pardon from God, we also need life-giving transformation within. Otherwise we will keep on sinning against God. And the Old Testament reveals those truths to us. But next, within the gospel accounts in the New Testament, we have the third phase of redemption. Redemption accomplished. For Jesus, in his sacrificial death for us upon the cross, Jesus pays the costly ransom or redemption price for our sins. And then in the book of Acts and through the letters of Paul and others, we have redemption applied. For the Holy Spirit comes, doesn't he? He comes to us and he he gives to us new life. He enables us to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith so that we personally might be redeemed. And finally, in the fifth phase, uh, which we find particularly in the book of Revelation, we have redemption consummated. For the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in And we will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Indeed, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Revelation 21, verse 4. Now, as we know, The Bible brings to us this story of redemption and reconciliation by actually using different threads of truth. Threads of truth which, which, to change the metaphor, so to speak, they blossom, don't they? They bloom like a flower opening as we work our way progressively through the pages of the Bible. And so therefore, as we have the major theme in the Bible storyline of redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ for God's glory, so we have minor themes. Not really that minor, but they're minor compared with the major theme. We have minor themes such as God's kingdom and God's covenants and God's people and God's people's glorious inheritance from God. Now, one of those minor themes, as it were, is our subject for this morning. We're finally getting through to what I'm going to preach about. It's the subject of God's presence with his people. God's presence with his people. Or more specifically, that God's people will see God's face. They will see the king in his beauty. So how shall we approach this subject, this wonderful subject of seeing the king in his beauty? Well, under three headings. First, we'll do a little bit of what's called biblical theology. We'll see how this theme is found throughout the Bible. And second, we'll do a little bit of what's called systematic theology. We will see how this truth is a major part of the gospel message. 
And then third, we'll attempt to apply this truth to our own lives today. So what, we may ask? Three things then, let's, let's consider them in turn. Firstly, the biblical theology. For this subject of seeing God is important. It's an important, it's a vital Bible theme. And I want to show that to you this morning. Now there are many, many, many verses we could turn to in order to illustrate this truth. A surprising number of verses right through the Bible which speak about a seeing God. However, for, simply for the sake of time, let me very briefly, let me bring to you uh, seven passages of Scripture. We'll move through them very quickly. If you want to look at them in the Bibles, please do, but I'll read the relevant bits out to you so you can just sit and listen if you want. Uh, the first is Genesis 3 verse 8. Genesis 3 verse 8, right at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, For in the beginning, before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was unmarred and blessed communion between God and his image bearers. Indeed, we read within that verse that God would meet with them, Adam and Eve, as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. What a beautiful verse that is. God communing with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But it's not true now, is it? No. For now, Adam and Eve had defied God's will for them. They were rebels. They were sinners. And so now, as we read, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How desperately sad is that? One of the saddest verses in the Bible. They hid from God. In fact, later on we read in, of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, being banished from God's presence, unable to return because of an angel with a flaming sword. Genesis 3, verse 24. Next, the second passage is Exodus 33, verse 20. For Moses, that that great leader of God's people, who was instrumental in redeeming the fledgling nation of Israel out of slavery within Egypt, Moses wants to see, doesn't he, God's glory. But what does God say to him? What does God say? But, the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me. And live. So even Moses, despite being a faithful servant of the Lord, even Moses, because of his sin, even Moses was unable to see God and live. Even Moses. In other words, the angel. That angel with the flaming sword will still continues, doesn't he, to bar men and women from God's presence. But then we have two Old Testament passages which counter, in some measure that is, they counter this depressing and dismal outlook. Uh, For they both give to us hope that this will not always be the case. Uh, The first is Psalm 17 verse 15. As for me... David writes concerning the Lord, As for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face when I awake. I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. 
And then the, uh, the fourth passage, the second of those more positive passages, is that our text for this morning. Isaiah 33, verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. So how can this be? How is it possible that both David and Isaiah, how is it possible for them to have such hope that they will truly see God? How? Well, our final Old Testament passage, our fifth passage, gives us a hint of how this will be. It's Job 19, verses 25 to 27. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There it is. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In other words, there's a Redeemer coming, isn't there? Who will accomplish this for God's people. This Redeemer who will deal irreversibly with the flaming sword of Eden so that we might enter again into God's presence and see his face. And who is this future Redeemer? Well, we know, don't we? It's Jesus Christ himself. And even more, when we look at Jesus, we're actually looking at God himself, aren't we? For Jesus is God. John 14, verse 9, Jesus answered, this is our sixth passage, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Therefore the King in his beauty whom the redeemed will see is Jesus Christ himself. For that's exactly whom David and Isaiah and Job and we ourselves will see. Jesus. Finally, the seventh passage is Revelation 22, verse 4. We've now gone right to the other end of the Bible. We began in Genesis 3. We're now looking at Revelation 22, verse 4. This is when all this will fully come true. We have when Eden's curse will be reversed and Eden itself will be restored. When? In the new heavens and the new earth. For in that verse we have these remarkable words concerning that future time. They will, that is the redeemed of the Lord, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. So in a sense, the the storyline, I gave you one storyline, didn't I, regarding redemption, but the storyline of the Bible could also be expressed to us in this way. First, seeing the Lord lost. Second, seeing the Lord promised. Third, seeing the Lord won. And then fourth, seeing the Lord restored. It's truly, it really is a vital, essential and important theme of our Bible. God's presence with his people, seeing God's face. However, secondly, let's look now at the systematic theology. 
For how is this possible? How is this possible? How can people, sinners, just like you and me, how can people get past that flaming sword of God's justice in order to enter God's presence and see his face? How can they? How can they? Indeed, why is Moses, arguably the greatest man in the Old Testament, not able to see God's glory and live? Yet one day, all God's people will see his face. How is that possible? Well, ask yourself, what comes in between, in between, excuse me, what comes in between the redemption of Israel under Moses there in the Old Testament, right at the beginning of the Old Testament, and the new heavens and the new earth ushered in by Jesus Christ when he comes again in glory and majesty at the end of the, Old, of the New Testament. What comes in between? It's the cross, isn't it? That's what comes in between. For on the cross, Jesus Christ deals with the flaming sword of Eden. How? By going under it himself. By dying for his people's sins in his people's place. So that that terrifying sword of God's justice is no longer there for those who trust in Jesus Christ alone. Yes, the sword killed him. That is true. But he also killed it, if I can put it in that way. Therefore, the sword of Eden has been broken once and for all time and forever. And so, to like to paraphrase the Puritan John Owen, death itself has actually died in the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, once Jesus died under the justice of God, then the way back into God's presence was opened up for all those who have faith in him. Now, if you think about it, that's exactly why, isn't it? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, uh, this veil was there, wasn't it? To prevent everyone, everyone. That is, except except for the high priest for a very short time, but just once a year. It was there to prevent everyone going into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. It was to prevent everyone from going into the very presence of God himself and seeing the Shekinah glory of God. But in Mark 15, verses 37 and 38, we read these two highly significant statements, one right after the other. Strange, actually, why that Mark, in a sense, it's strange, why Mark puts these two statements together. Why he goes from the cross at one point and then the next verse he goes a few miles down the road to the temple. Listen to what Mark writes. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. For the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see it? For once Jesus Christ died for us under the justice of God, so the way back into God's presence was open for everyone who believes in him which is symbolically represented by the tearing of the veil in two from top to bottom, showed the way back into the presence of God was open 
for all who have faith. Indeed, that's why the very next verse, Mark 15 verse 39, speaks of the faith of the Gentile centurion. Notice, Gentile centurion. He was the first one in, wasn't he, so to speak? And that also is significant. But that's the gospel, isn't it? That is the essence of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the message which we have to proclaim, whether from a pulpit or over the internet or one-to-one over a cup of coffee. That's the gospel. You see, we have been made, haven't we, to know God, to love God, to serve God, to glorify God, even to enjoy God forever. That's the whole rationale for our existence. But that wonderful purpose for our existence to commune with God has been tragically lost when Adam fell. But Jesus Christ, God's own beloved Son, he came into this world in order to reverse the consequence of that fall. For Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death for his people, he provides, doesn't he, pardon, full and free and forever. He provides pardon from God. He also grants us, doesn't he, transforming new life within. And he also reverses all the consequences of the fall. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It's glorious, isn't it? Revelation 21, verse 4. Or our text for this morning, Isaiah 33, verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. It is glorious, isn't it? It should thrill your heart, shouldn't it? And all the glory will be to God, for he has done all things well. It's a glorious theme, isn't it? We shall see his face. However, thirdly and finally, what about you this morning? What's the challenge for you personally? What's the challenging application of this truth? to your life today in the 21st century. So what? Is it just an interesting theological discourse or does it have relevance to our lives today? Well, it does. And let me give you three applications to close. First, first application. This truth should give you a true perspective on life within this world here and now. It really should. For we always need to examine, don't we, our priorities and reject that which is unimportant. You see, life within this world, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're successful or a failure, whether you're influential or of no account whatsoever, life within this world is just a breath. That's all it is. Here today gone tomorrow. I think in Job it describes life in this world as the passing of a shuttle on a weaver's womb. Zip, zip, it's gone. That's all it is. Breath, isn't it? 
So don't get overwrought if things go all pear-shaped in this world. Don't make things of this world a priority within your life either. That is so easy and so dangerous for us to do, isn't it? This world is in our faces, isn't it? It seems so real, so important. It is real, but it seems so vital. But no, let's get a perspective on things. Matthew 6, verses 21 and 22. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So constantly, think about where you're headed. To see the king, no less, in his beauty. And it will truly help you to get things into a right perspective in this world today. Second application, secondly. Is this truly your longing? Is it truly your desire to see the king in his beauty? Is it? Do you wholeheartedly agree with Job when he says in Job 19 verse 27, we read it earlier, uh, as he contemplates seeing God himself. Do you agree wholeheartedly with Job when he says, how my heart yearns within me? Is that you? Is it? Indeed, ask yourself, what do you look forward to in heaven? What do you look forward to in heaven? Living forever? good isn't it being able to do all sorts of amazing things it's good isn't it freedom from pain and suffering that is good as I get older I'm more aware of that no wrongdoing or to put it differently what makes heaven heaven for you I know what it should be Jesus Christ himself to see him, to see his face. Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ, the hope of glory. For this is the very pinnacle, isn't it, of blessings, to see God's face. And when we look at the face of God, it's actually the face of Jesus Christ which we will see. That's the pinnacle of blessings. Now, do you realise that? Do you? Do you realise that the very high point of heaven will not be living forever? It will not be enjoying all the wonder of what we ourselves are and what we ourselves shall do. No, the very high point of heaven will be seeing the beauty and the glory of our Saviour. For he is altogether lovely. Bernard Hyam, in his hymn, I saw a new vision of Jesus. He expresses this important truth like this, and it's wonderful what he writes. He writes in in this hymn, Our God is the end of the journey, his pleasant and glorious domain, for there are the children of mercy who'll praise him for Calvary's pain. Now do you see it? Do you? Our God is the end of the journey. 
for the greatest blessing of the new heavens and the new earth will be to see Jesus Christ himself. He is what makes heaven. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. That should thrill your heart. That should bring desire and longing to your heart to see him. Thirdly, third application, final application. Not only should this truth give you a right perspective on life within this world today, not only should it be your longing for your, the future, it should also make you thankful to God for all the, his glorious, lavish grace to you in Jesus Christ. It should lead you to worship and to praise and to adoration of the God who has given to you his own son, the King, as your saviour. Whom you will also one day see. Should lead you to an ever deepening appreciation of who God is and an ever deepening wonder at what he has done for you in Jesus Christ should lead to praise and worship and adoration. Indeed, your worship of God and your thankfulness to God now should be in anticipation of how you will worship God and be thankful to God then in glory to come. For worship of God and thankfulness to God then will be the central characteristic, won't it, of your life in heaven. And such worship and such thankfulness will be wonderful. It will. It will be an utter delight. Well, may the Lord help us to be thankful now in anticipation of the out-and-out out wonder of seeing the king in his beauty and, living, and viewing a land that stretches afar for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, forgive us. Forgive us that so often we lose sight of the glory of our Saviour and we lose sight of where we're headed and the wonder of our salvation in him. Forgive us that we are so much not in, taken up with the things of heaven and the things to come, but we're taken up too much with the things of this world. Help us truly to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is. Help us to realise afresh that one day, we will see the King in his beauty. Help us, O oh our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.